On this episode of Ice Analytics, I'm going to be evaluating the various goaltender metrics at our disposal, things like goal saved above average, goal saved above expectation, etc. I'm going to be joined by the boys from the Tip of the Iceberg podcast representing the Pittsburgh Penguins. This is Ice Analytics, proudly part of the Hockey Podcast Network. Welcome to episode nine of Ice Analytics. I am your host, Matthew Arp, and I can't believe it's already almost the trade deadline. This is one of those moments where it feels like the season is starting to wrap up. We've only got a couple months left. About a quarter of the season is left after the trade deadline, and I know we're going to be talking about this more next week, but oh my God, I'm I'm pretty excited to see what happens. I'm going to have... TSN on all day. If you're in the States, you're going to have ESPN on all day, I'm sure. It seems like every division is ultra competitive right now with so little separation for some of those wild card spots. One move may be all you need to get you over the top. And one of the perks of being unemployed is I got all day to sit here and watch these trades roll in, which is why it's going to be a real disappointment if there's like no blockbusters. But uh, beside the point, on this week's number crunch, I'm going to be digging into some of the goaltending metrics to tell you which goaltenders in the past decade have performed the best and which ones have performed the best above their expectations. And on this week's Stat Chat, I'm going to be joined by Nick and Nick, the boys from the tip of the Iceberg podcast, representing the Pittsburgh Penguins. I got some questions for them about goaltending as they have one of the best goaltenders in the league right now. And the Penguins are an awesome natural experiment of seeing a team that is performing about equally as well in front of two different goaltenders, but are having wildly different results from each of them. Listen, I'm not going to mince words about this. Your goaltender is your team's single most important factor in winning or losing a hockey game, period. They're the only player to play all 60 minutes in a physical and demanding position that requires a next level focus and skill. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that the goaltending is more important than your offense or your defense, but in terms of single player impact, the goaltending position has the single most impact of any one player on your roster. So this number crunch is going to look at ways of evaluating goaltender performance. We're going to start by surveying the landscape of what the different options for evaluation are and kind of look at what some of the pros and cons of each of these are and what this data tells us. All these numbers are courtesy of Natural Stat Trick. I've got this filtered by goaltender minutes over 500. So you've played at least like 13-ish games and I'm only looking at five on five over the past decade. Let's start with something a little simple. So goals against average and save percentage are the most common measurements that you hear about. Those are the measurements you see on ESPN or TSN or the broadcasters will oftentimes cite as being a a good goaltender metric. I mean, let's be honest, they give out the William M. Jennings trophy for the goaltender or the tandem with the lowest goals against average. So Even the league recognizes the importance of goals against average and save percentage. But what's wrong with goals against average? 
Well, for starters, the number of goals given up per game does not take into consideration the number of shots faced. Is it as equally impressive to give up four goals on 20 shots or four goals on 50 shots? Where are those shots coming from, etc. Now, this is where save percentage comes in because it evaluates the number of saves made based on the number of shots faced, which is definitely a better measurement of goaltender performance. But what if your team takes away low danger shots from the point and lets the goaltender get peppered from the slot? And alternatively, what if the team does a good job of defensively sheltering their goaltender by defending down low and only exposing them to shots out by the blue line? In either of these cases, a defensive scheme has a lot more to do with save percentage and goals against average than the goaltender themselves. So what do I propose as an alternative? Well, I got a couple different things that I want to throw at you. There's a couple of metrics that take team defense into consideration, first of which is goals saved above average. Now, what this is, is it's the difference between the goaltender's goals against and a goals against with the same shots against and an average save percentage. Essentially, how many goals would the average goaltender give up if they were on this team? This gives a very good depiction of how much better or worse a goaltender performs compared to the average goaltender. Negative numbers are obviously not a good sign, but it is a matter of scale. If we look at data going back the past decade, the per game goals saved above average ranges from about one per game that Tim Thomas achieved in 2010 and minus one per game, which was accomplished by Pascal Leclerc in 2009. That's a pretty huge swing. You're talking one goal per game saved above average or one goal per game saved below the average goaltender. That's a lot for one game. And there's a lot of familiar names when you look at the top list. Names like Bennington in 2018, Mason in 2014, and Bobrovsky in 2012. All three of those guys finished near the top of the list in goals saved above the average goaltender, which takes into consideration, which is good company to keep, but it still looks at save percentage, and it still looks at average save percentage, which is has its own flaws. So let's move on to the next one, expected goals. If you've been listening to this podcast the past few weeks, you probably already have a sense of what expected goals are. It's the likelihood that a shot is going to go in the net. And it takes into consideration a host of factors like shot distance, rebounding, deflections, coordinates, etc. It's not a measure for perfect team defense when you're looking at it the other way, the shots that you're facing and the likelihood of those going in. But it is the best quantifiable metric for shot location, and type that a goaltender faces. And in the past decade, we've seen this number range from 1.57, that's right, 1.57 goals a game, which was accomplished by Brodeur in 2012 and Harding in 2013 to 2.8, which was achieved by Cam Ward in 2018. And if we compare the expected number of goals to the actual number of goals that these goaltenders gave up, we can identify which goaltenders over and under achieved their expectations. And there's really six players in particular that stood out as being heads and shoulders above the rest. Lundqvist in 2009 and 2015, Tim Thomas in 2010, Hudobin in 2013, and Grubauer and Miller in 2017. 
Now on the other end of the spectrum, there's too many to name, but the one that really stands out is Mika Kippersoff in 2012 and Pekka Rinne in 2013 had very poor seasons considering their expectations that take into consideration how well the defense was playing in front of them. Now, the last thing that I need to mention, and I know that I've been somewhat critical of save percentage, but we can actually break down and see the save percentage based on location. Now, I know you've heard me mention low, medium, and high danger shots before. You can actually look at and evaluate a goaltender's save percentage based on the number of shots they face from a certain area. And this isn't a perfect metric because there's a lot of other things that should be taken into consideration, but it's a little bit better than just plain old save percentage. If we look at high danger save percentage, which is the most important save percentage, this is the percentage of high danger shots against that were saves from right in front of the net. High danger shots are those in the slot and low slot areas that have a high percentage of going in. And if you look at the goaltenders that have performed the best against those types of shots, Corey Schneider in 2010 almost had a 90% save percentage against high danger chances. And Pekka Rinne in 2013, one of those seasons that I just mentioned was, was one of the worst in terms of expected goals, he was only saving 74% of shots from high danger areas. Now, there is a very strong relationship between high danger and mid-danger save percentage and the number of goals given up, with high danger saves being the most important, and that's not very surprising. But what isn't as strong is the relationship between high danger save percentage and goals saved above average. Neither Lundqvist, Grubauer, or Miller in those spectacular seasons that they had had top 10 high danger save percentages. And I think what this is telling us is it, it is absolutely important to be able to save high danger shots that have a high percentage of going in, but they're not everything. And like many of these stats, being near the top is obviously better than being near the bottom in this category. But evaluating goaltender performance exclusively based on how well they save the most dangerous shots, even the best goaltenders in history, may have poor high danger save percentages, but be off the charts at mid and low danger. And at the end of the day, some of the responsibility needs to be put on the defense to prevent those number of high danger chances from occurring in the first place. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed this exposition on goaltending and goaltending metrics, and I'm looking forward to speaking with my guest on the Stat Chat. On this week's Stat Chat, I'm joined by Nick and Nick from the Tip of the Iceberg podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Iceberg Podcast, and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, I'm one of the Nicks, of course, and you know it's great to be on the show. I've been listening to the show the first couple of weeks, and you've had some great guests. I was excited when you you sent over the message, so I'll send it over to the other Nick so he can he can say hi. Yeah, uh, I'm Nick Horwat. We'll get used to. You know, having each other's names be Nick. Uh, me and Berlansky uh, have been, you know, just been using last names over um, on the Tip of the Iceberg podcast, but we're excited to be here on this one. Berlansky, I know you're the stat guy out of us two, or stat guy, the uh, analytics guy out of us two. Wow, I don't I'm know mostly if, uh, just doing the uh, eye test. 
Yeah, I don't know if I technically call myself an analytics guy just yet. I'm trying to get into it. So hopefully, I know your podcast has been helping out. So hopefully this uh, this experience will help me go a little bit more forward and getting under an understanding of analytics. Awesome. Well, first up, this is going to be a softball to start. It's been well documented that this season has been brutal for the Penguins on the injury front. They rank number one in the impact of man games lost by looking at the average of ice time of skaters lost. But even still, this team just keeps overcoming adversity time and time again this season. Two-part question, how are you feeling so far about this team's performance? And what are your expectations if the team gets back to 100% health? Um, I think I'll cover the how we're feeling so far, and I'll let Horwat go with the uh, expectations. But, I mean, how can you not be completely enthralled if you're a Pittsburgh Penguins fan so far this season? I mean, like you mentioned, the long-term injuries to Crosby, to Malkin, Gensel's now out. You've missed Latang. Plus, you have everything with Matt Murray going on, his whole situation that he has going. And your team is in fourth place in the league right now, two games in hand on the Caps and only six points behind. So I don't think there's any way you can't be extremely excited about the prospects for the season, especially with a lot of the similarities between this year's team and 2016's team. So if you're a Penguins fan right now, it's very impossible to not be happy with the way that it's looked so far this season, even through all those mind-numbing numbers of injuries and the, the level of play of the players that have been out. Penguins makes a great point. Plus, going forward for us, uh, the Penguins are a team that haven't missed the playoffs since you know Sidney Crosby's rookie season. Um, so expectations, you know, injuries or not, are almost always high. And at least a playoff team is kind of expected from this t- from this town. And this this year is totally no different. Now that Crosby's back and making a good case to be still one of the top players in the league, if Kenny Malkin is taking over this season um, when Gensel went out. Uh, whatever's no Gensel or Crosby, Malkin has taken over to be one of the top players once again. Brian Rust is absolutely outperforming everyone, it seems like, this year. And we have all these guys that keep getting called up and continue to contribute. Um, the expectations going forward are no short of maybe another deep playoff run for us. Very cool. So this week's episode has been all about goaltending and the various metrics used to evaluate goaltenders. And the reason I I definitely wanted to have both of you on was that the Penguins are an amazing natural case study because of Matt Murray and Tristan Jari. They have played a similar number of games. And by all indications, the team in front of them is playing the same with their expected goals to be about the same, their save percentages expected to be about the same. And Murray has come up a little short. What is your assessment of the goaltender tandem this season? Um, It's it's an issue that we're kind of used to almost uh you can remember a few years back flurry was starting to get his job taken by matt murray and now i'm not saying murray's getting his job taken by jari but jari's had a very very hot hand recently and that's what uh, mike sullivan likes to do is just play the hot hand and roll with it and murray's used to that he's been a very very good sport about it and you know the numbers may not have been there for murray so in the early stages of the season but since the turn of the calendar year, he hasn't lost a game yet. Granted, he's given up, but you know, some goals here and there, some bad ones, but um, he's found a way to win. The team in front of him has found a way to win, and Murray's numbers are starting to improve again, and which is good for him in that it's a contract year. It's a contract year for both of them, and I don't see either of them going anywhere anytime soon now. 
Yeah, and I think when you look at it, the biggest dichotomy between them as far as metrics is concerned, from what I've seen, is the goal saved above average. Murray's is down at negative 9.88, and Jari's is around 3.42. So Jari's isn't above and beyond great, which I know I call it, Connor Hellebuck, I think, leads the league at around 8 or 9 or something like that. But Murray ranks last in that category among Metro goaltenders, and that's just people that have played 1,000 minutes. So it's something that this is even after his turnaround. So it's something that I think a lot of it was mental with Matt Murray. And as Horwat mentioned, it's something the Penguins fans have seen with Murray and Flurry and Murray and Jari and everything like that. So it's something to definitely keep an eye on is the way that he tries to turn around in this second half. I know last season, around the second half of the season, he had a really good stretch. So it'll be something that we would like to see going forward, obviously, with both of these guys. If they're playing the way they've been playing through January, it's going to be something that really helps out the Penguins. Now, while Jari has been exceptional, like you said, in terms of 5v5, goal saved above average, goals above average, save percentage, any of those metrics, there's two areas that I found that are that are interesting concerns or maybe red flags, and that's special teams and high-danger shots. And this is where Matt Murray has actually outperformed Jari in terms of uh, his, his penalty-killing, uh, on the on the PK, his goal saved above average and his goal saved above expectation. So first of all, let's talk about the PK for a second. What is your take on the PK? I'm not sure if it's something that Murray's just had the experience in that. And I know that a lot of this season for the Penguins penalty kill has kind of been touch and go with all the injuries, whether who they want to play in there or who they want to keep in there. They've stayed relatively as a team, relatively high for penalty kill even though Tristan Jari's save percentage on the kill is only at 852. When you look at the top tier of those guys, of the guys in the league that are the top tier goaltenders, they're up around the 875. So while he's, he might be in the second tier and it might be a little bit of a, a red flag going into the playoffs, I think the biggest thing is going to be how the people play in front of him because there's been a lot of overturn on the Penguins penalty kill. And while, yes, Jari hasn't really been able to make the big saves on the penalty kill that you would hope a goaltender, especially a starting goaltender, is going to make towards the end of the season and into the playoffs. It's something that once the people in front of him get solidified, I think hopefully his numbers start improving as well. So moving on to the second thing about the high danger chances. It's really interesting because Jari has been much more susceptible to shots in close, giving up about two and a half more high danger goals per 60 than the average goaltender, saving about 80%. Uh, in those high danger shot areas. But Murray, on the other hand, is saving about two and a half goals more than average from that high uh, danger area, saving about 83%. So if you're holding the rest of the team constant and and games played and, and the players on the ice and everything, the average goal against Murray is 26 feet away from the net, but the average goal against Jari is 18 feet away from the net. So what what are you seeing that can explain the, this disparity in goal locations and and, and high danger percentages. I think when it comes to Tristan Jari, it might just be something that he is a young player and he hasn't really developed in his game the way to kind of read those plays. I really haven't seen much in the way of him kind of excelling in that. Like you said, he's giving up a little bit more closer to the net. For Matt Murray, his average goal, like you said, is 26 feet away from the net. A lot of that this season is because of when you watch a game with Matt Murray in it, he, if he's not playing well and if he's not feeling himself he'll give up those goals from further away and it seems like he thrives when it's a high danger chance or his blood gets pumping and it's a really good opportunity but he seems to let in what I don't want to consider soft goals but what most people would consider he lets in soft goals whenever he's not having the best of seasons that's what we've seen this season as far as Tristan Jari like you said it might be something of concern moving forward as of right now 
he's still a young goaltender, and I think that's something that he's going to struggle with, and he needs to figure out a way to fix because otherwise that's what separates a middle-tier goalie from the top-tier goalies in this league. Like I mentioned before, Vasilevsky and Ben Bishop, those guys are all guys that have figured out how to kind of smother those high-danger goals against and, and numbers and those chances, and it's something that Jari hasn't been able to do. And whether that's because of the men in front of him or not, it's kind of showing with Matt Murray's numbers that he needs to pick it up himself. It's not really anything that the rest of the team has been an issue with. Yeah, I'd say that's just um, Jari being, you know, a young, new goaltender in this league. Granted, he's been around the Penguins organization, has found some uh, NHL ice time over the past few years. But um, in the analytics side of it, those are just things that might improve over time. He's a young goalie still with, um, I don't know exactly how old he is compared to Murray, but I know they're pretty close in age at least. But Jari is still younger and newer um, to the NHL system. And those are just numbers that analytic, analytics-wise I would expect to probably improve as time goes on and he learns a little more about NHL play and, you know, picks up some experience points. Yeah, I just off the top of my head, is there anything schematically they could be doing differently? in the defensive zone that uh, maybe limits those number of high danger chances? I think the big thing for them right now is their top pairing. Their top pairing defensively is Chris Letang and Jack Johnson. And while, yes, Chris Letang is very much a polarizing figure in Pittsburgh, Jack Johnson is not. Everybody knows that Jack Johnson with the puck is not really that great, and his positioning in his own zone defensive support-wise isn't that great. And that first pairing has been playing against obviously who you want your first pairing playing against the top lines. And they've had a lot of giveaways and it's a lot of giveaways in those high danger chances that those guys kind of set the tone for the whole defense. And if those guys aren't on the same page it makes it tough for the rest of your defensive core to make up for that. And I think that's the reason that you see Tristan Jari kind of struggling with his high danger chances too, because you have your top pairing giving up more chances than your second pairing or maybe even your third pairing. Yeah, our first pairing has been uh, – it's been missing Brian Dumoulin over these past few weeks to almost months now, I guess. And having Jack Johnson on your first pairing is not ideal, especially in a sports town that loves harping on him over things. <laughs> he, Jack Johnson can have a decent okay season, but he's not a first-line defensive uh, kind of guy, and it doesn't fit for him here so far. Right, right. Well, speaking of trades – before the season started, there was a ton of buzz surrounding trading Tristan Jerry. And uh, in hindsight, I'm sure you're pretty happy that you didn't. And I know you mentioned before about the, the free agency. What is the long-term future for both Jari and uh, Murray in Pittsburgh? So the way I see it is we were going into the season as – we had three goalies that we knew could perform in the NHL. And if any of them was going to be on the chopping block, it was going to be Tristan Jari. Jim Rutherford tried to make a trade for him um, over the offseason, and no one no one took a bite on him. And I don't know what exactly happened to where we put the Smith through waivers and he somehow cleared it because I know there are teams in the league that could desperately use a backup goalie right now. And not only did teams turn down a trade for Jar, but they also let Smith slide through waivers. It, the way I see it is that hurt the rest of the league, and they, a lot of the rest of the league does not deserve to have either goalie. I've kind of gotten past that. But with the future coming into play here, Murray and Jari are both on the last year of their contracts. 
Um, I've said that Murray is definitely our future number one going forward, regardless of how play has gone this season. Um, it's just a matter of, I think his money situation is what changed. He's probably gotten a bit of his next of his next paycheck, maybe stolen from Jari, who's going to make maybe a little extra cash now because of the way that they've played. You mentioned they've played very sim- played very similar, very similar numbers. And it's really true. They both have um, 17 and 16 wins, Jari to Murray respectively. And uh, Jari now has more regulation losses. So they've accumulated almost identical uh, games played and records almost. So they've both been playing fairly well, and it's really good to see for this team. And going forward, these are two guys you want as your one-two tandem. And it's just made uh, Casey DeSmith pretty de- de- pretty expendable anymore. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> All of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's something I kind of wrote about um, – a little bit ago and have been talking about almost all season with Brilansky. So I have my heart set on it and love what this, this team has done with these two and maybe even three, if they make a good move with the Smith. It's never a bad problem to have uh, too many number one goaltenders because we know Jari and Murray could probably be a number one on a lot of teams in the league, honestly. Yeah. Um, and if you bring it back, even the last season, Matt Murray kind of, he didn't struggle, but he had he missed some games for personal issues and then kind of faulted a little bit. And DeSmith came in and was a pretty good starting goalie for us. So we have three guys that are able to start in the NHL. If the price was right, what would you move Jari for now? I think especially because he's coming off of an all-star appearance in his basically pseudo-rookie season, I would say if you package him with a first-round pick, that's how you get your first your top six winger. Okay. And he's a guy I don't want to move, but like if it came down to it, um, I'd have to say a top six winger or if, you know, someone's willing to take Jack Johnson off of our hands as well. <laughs> Cause we have some pretty decent defensive depth that um, we could take a winger in return, lose a Jack Johnson and uh, still, go from there. Still have seven NHL ready defensemen that are currently on yeah. the roster. <laughs> exactly. Wow. You guys should be GMs because I, I like that. That sounds like a that sounds like a really good proposal for for both sides. Yeah, NHL twenty GM mode's pretty fun sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll use you as a reference whenever I I sign up to be the GM of the new Seattle team and once Ron Francis gets fired. Absolutely. Before we go, uh, I just wanted to give you guys the floor for a second, and if there's anything you want to plug or anything you want to hype or any shoutouts you wanna you want to give to anybody, the floor is yours. All right. Thank you very much. I think obviously we start with plugging our own show, the tip of the iceberg on the hockey podcast network and really any show on the, the uh, hockey podcast network tales with TR this podcast tune into the tip of the iceberg new episodes every Monday and Thursday. We talk obviously everything Pittsburgh Penguins. It's a good time. And then Horwat, I don't know if you have anything else. I'll let you uh, take the floor. But before that, I just wanted to thank you, Mr. Arp, Dr. Arp for having me on and I'll let Horwat have the floor here for a second. Yeah, I just uh, plug in the same things. And also, if um, you pay attention enough to our Twitter, which is escaping me right now. At Iceberg um, Podcast. I'm, yes. <laughs> I began writing for the hockey writers. So look out for some of my stuff there if um, you're interested in reading more opinions of mine. <laughs> That's awesome. Congratulations on that. Thank you. On that note, I want to thank both of you for taking the time to chat about the Penguins goaltenders. And I wish you both the best of luck. 
And be sure to check out their podcast, Tip of the Iceberg, and follow them on Twitter, at Iceberg Podcast. All right, so let's bring this thing up to date, current. And if we look at the goaltending data from this season, looking at the beginning of this week, there's a few players that stand out for good and bad reasons. We're going to be using natural stat tricks data, 500 minimum minutes played, which is about 15 games. Who is performing the worst and the best this season? At the top, Rask, Hudobin, Elvis, Corpusolo, Jari have all been leading the way in terms of goals against average per 60 on 5v5 and save percentage. At the other end of the spectrum, guys like Howard, Hutchinson, Jones, Holpe, Mike Smith are holding up the rear. Now we know for Hutchinson, unfortunately, he just got waived about a week ago and probably for good reason. How much of this is the goaltender's fault or how much of it is the defensive structure's fault? Well, we can actually subtract the estimated expected number of goals from natural stat trick from the actual number of goals that they give up per game to better determine this. Rask, Hudobin, Jake Allen, and Elvis are letting in about one less goal per four games than they are expected to based on the defensive structure and the way that they're playing in front of them. Now, there's a few goaltenders that have performed much worse than expected. Dubnik, Howard, Jones. The three of them are giving up about one goal per game more than they're expected. If we put the microscope on those three players and compare them to the other goaltenders that play for those teams, Stalock hasn't been great, but he's still given up about half a less goal per game than Dubnik. Aaron Dell also hasn't been very good, but has given up more than a half a goal less per game than Jones. And if you think that's bad, let's take a look at Detroit for one second. Jonathan Bernier is giving up over one goal less per game than Jimmy Howard. Now, these are not expected numbers. These are actual numbers. Bernier has given up 2.28 goals a game. And Howard has given up 3.38 goals per game that they're playing. Now, you can argue quality of competition and whatnot, but if you look at their expected goals per game, all three of these pairs, very similar in terms of expected production, but very different in terms of actual production. Now, another way of evaluating the team defense is looking at the number of high danger chances that the team gives up per game. Minnesota is the best team in the league at limiting the number of high-danger chances. Yeah, this is the same Minnesota team with Devin Dubnik as their starting goaltender, so I think we can safely say that there's something going on with him. Rounding out the top three and lowest number of high-danger chances per game are Boston and Columbus. Both teams have goaltenders near the top of the league in goals against average and save percentage. So they're doing their job but the team is doing a really good job in front of them, limiting the number of chances. So given all these facts, which goalie is bailing their team out the most? Well, it should come as no surprise that the correct answer is someone I haven't mentioned yet, Connor Hellebuck. And the reason I haven't mentioned him is if you look at per game metrics, he's not leading the league in anything, but the Jets are giving up almost nine high danger shots per game which is in the top five of teams. He has the best cumulative goal saved above average in the league, although he is fourth in goals saved above average per game, but has played a lot more games than his counterparts. 
All I got to say is Paul Maurice better donate some of that salary extension money to the goaltender who saved his job. And I think the GM needs to do a lot more to, to help him out going forward. He is absolutely bailing this team out. Is the only reason why they're even in the conversation for the playoffs. If you put anybody else on that team, if you put 99% of the other goaltenders in the league on this team, they'd be horrible right now. So much love and credit to Hellebuck and much credit to the Bostons and the Columbuses of the world who have had good goaltending but also expectedly good goaltending because they're putting their goaltender in the best position to be successful. Well, that's a wrap, and today is Friday before the trade deadline, so I just want to say to everybody, happy trade deadline day to everyone. Hopefully your team makes some moves, whether you're buying or selling. Good luck. And next week, we're going to have a really fun episode. We're going to be talking about the trade deadline, but we're not just going to be talking about the moves that were made. But we're also going to be talking about the trade deadline in general compared to deadline deals in other sports, has some historical deadline deals that were blockbusters. How did this year compare to those years? And why does the NHL trade deadline always seem not as exciting as some of the other major sports? And remember, folks, drink and think responsibly. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Ice Analytics, your source for NHL stats and analysis hosted by the Hockey Podcast Network. Every team, everywhere. You can find me on Twitter at Ice Analytics, and you can find the show notes at www.statsenforcer.com. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to our feed and leave us a review.